welcome to the Society of Pediatric Sedation podcast, a podcast dedicated to those immersed in pediatric procedural sedation. My name is Pradeep Kamath. I'm an associate professor at Emory University School of Medicine and a pediatric critical care physician at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Hello, my name is Carmen Sultan, and I'm an assistant professor of pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine and a pediatric emergency medicine physician at Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. Today's sedation podcast is dedicated to monitoring and pediatric procedural sedation. We are delighted to have as our guest expert, Dr. Kevin Calores, a clinical associate professor of pediatrics at Stanford University and a pediatric critical care physician at the Lucille Packard Children's Hospital in California Pacific Medical Center in California. Dr. Calores has been with the Society for Pediatric Sedation for many years and is currently the vice chair for the research committee and the Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium, the research arm of the Society for Pediatric Sedation. Let's start with our patient case. A four-year-old boy needs a brain MRI for a focal seizure he had two days ago. Patient has no allergies and is previously healthy. Patient was sedated using a propofol bolus and is maintained on a propofol infusion in the MRI. Dr. Colores, before we get into the details of the above case, why is the monitoring of a patient undergoing procedural sedation so important? Thank you, Pradeep and Carmen, for having me here on the sedation podcast. I'm delighted to be with you guys, and monitoring is one of my favorite topics. I have no financial disclosures or conflicts of interest. In the past few decades, there is an increasing number of children requiring imaging or minor surgical procedures. As a consequence of this increase, the non-anesthesiology sedation providers provide sedation and or analgesia outside the operating room in various settings, such as the physician's office, dental offices, subspecialty procedure suites, imaging facilities, emergency rooms, other inpatient hospital settings, and ambulatory surgery centers. It is vital that children receive sedation and or analgesia in a safe setting without any harm due to the sedatives or analgesics being used. And while direct observation is simple and effective, it may miss subtle changes and is difficult when the room is darkened or the patient is covered or placed in the MRI magnet, which has limited access by the caregivers. In such circumstances, it is important to ensure that there are no hemodynamic or airway compromise. Early recognition of this airway or hemodynamic compromise can alert the sedation provider to make appropriate interventions and prevent serious adverse events, such as cardiac arrest or death. Although the overall incidence of the serious adverse events in sedation is low, less than 2.5%, a case can be made that they are so low, not only due to the expertise of the sedation team, but also due to advances in sedation monitoring. Great. Dr. Calores, how do we classify intended levels of sedation? Thank you, Carmen. That's a great question. In order to understand monitoring in pediatric procedural sedation, sedation providers must be aware of their intended level of sedation. Additionally, the American Academy of Pediatrics guidelines on procedural sedation are based on the level of intended sedation. There are four levels which are based on the patient's response to voice, touch, painful stimuli, and the effects of the medications on ventilatory and cardiovascular function. First, we have mild sedation, which is also called anxiolysis. And this is a drug-induced state during which patients respond normally to verbal commands. And although cognitive function and coordination may be impaired, ventilatory and cardiovascular functions are not affected. Next, we have moderate sedation. This is a drug-induced depression of consciousness during which patients respond purposefully 
to verbal commands or after light tactile stimulation. No interventions are required to maintain a patent airway and spontaneous ventilation is adequate. Cardiovascular function is usually maintained. Third, we have deep sedation. This is a drug-induced depression of consciousness during which patients cannot be easily aroused but respond purposely after repeated verbal or painful stimulation. The ability to maintain ventilatory function may be impaired. Cardiovascular function is usually maintained. Last, we have general anesthesia, which is a drug-induced loss of consciousness during which patients are not arousable, even by painful stimuli. The ability to independently maintain ventilatory function is also often impaired. Listeners should be aware that the spectrum of sedation is a continuum, and a patient may pass from one level to the next, and hence the level of vigilance monitoring, as well as expertise in recognition and management of airway and hemodynamics is required prior to providing sedation. Thank you, Kevin. My next question is, what are some of the monitoring tools we use in a pediatric procedure of sedation? Thanks, Radeep. We've got several tools. Our first is direct observation, which is our most basic. Then we have the pretracheal stethoscope. We have equipment to monitor heart rate and blood pressure. We have pulse oximetry, end tidal CO2 monitoring, also known as capnography, and and biospectral index monitor. Dr. Colores, how do you monitor a child who is receiving mild sedation? The child receiving mild sedation requires no more than observation or intermittent assessment of their level of sedation. Kevin, what about uh, a child undergoing moderate sedation? Mm -hmm. How would you uh, monitor that child? Yes. So in the moderate sedation case, in addition to the direct observation, you would add in continuous monitoring of their oxygen saturation and heart rate. These are required. And then if the practitioner is able to maintain communication with the child, then no further assessment of ventilation is required. However, if that's not, can't be done, whether the child is developmentally impaired or too young, then capnography or a pretracheal stethoscope would be a preferred method of monitoring their ventilation. And all vitals need to be documented at a minimum of every 10 minutes. And what type of monitoring would you use for a child undergoing deep sedation? When it's deep sedation, it would be a little bit more. So in addition to the direct observation, vital signs, which include the heart rate, respiratory rate, and blood pressure, we're now going to add in the pulse oximetry, which was required in moderate sedation, and capnography. And these vitals need to be documented every five minutes in a time-based record. And capnography would be used on almost all deeply sedated children because of the increased risk of airway or ventilation compromise. Personnel who should be there, sedation varies in that there should be two individuals who have appropriate training and certification in recognition and management of both the airway and hemodynamic compromise. One of the individuals should be an independent observer whose only responsibility is to monitor the patient continuously. And this person should not be involved in performing or assisting with the patient's procedure. This is especially true in dental cases. The other practitioner's sole responsibility should be to administer drugs and constantly observe the patient's vital signs, depth of sedation, airway patency, and adequacy of ventilation. Thank you, Kevin. How would you monitor a patient uh, who just finished a procedure and is waiting uh, for discharge? And this is, I'm talking about prior to being discharged home. Great. Yes, a child who's received moderate or deep sedation um, should be monitored in a recovery area where there's both oxygen and a suction apparatus readily available. The oxygen saturation and heart rate should be monitored continuously and documented every 10 to 15 minutes if the child is awake. If they're not awake, it should be every five minutes. And then 
each hospital sets its discharge criteria. Once those have been met, the child can be discharged. Dr. Coloris, what about the four-year-old child in our case who needs the brain MRI and is being sedated with propofol? So this would be a child who is deeply sedated. So in that case, I would recommend that the vital signs be monitored and recorded every five minutes. This includes the heart rate, the respiratory rate, the blood pressure, the oxygen saturation, and the capnography values. And this is going to be in a time-based record. And the capnography is a, a highly recommended step at this level of sedation. So, Dr. Colores, can you tell us more about the role of pulse oximetry as well as capnography in procedural sedation? Sure. I mean, pulse oximeters are a great tool. They have revolutionized both uh, sedation and anesthesia, and they've gotten better and better, and they're now less susceptible to motion artifact. And the pulse oximetry, if you use the um, ability to modulate the sound, you can get a not only the visual warning of the values being flashed on the screen, but you can also set it up so that the tone changes when there is a change in the oxygen saturation. There are MRI-safe pulse oximeters, which make it easy to monitor the O2 saturation of patients who are undergoing sedation in the MRI. The capnography can help diagnose apnea, where you'll see a flat waveform, no chest wall movement, no breath sounds, complete airway obstruction slash laryngospasm, in this case, it differs in that you have the flat waveform, but you may have chest wall movement presence, but no breath sounds or respiratory depression, you know, where you see a slow increase in the captography value or you don't see quite as uh, large of uh, volumes on the uh, waveform. In addition, the, so the end tidal capnography or can recognize apnea or airway obstruction before there is a drop in pulse oximetry. Depending on the literature, this is anywhere from 30 to 60 seconds in advance. And the key here is it's not the value that the capnography is giving you, but the waveform and looking for changes in that waveform. And the great thing is that the manufacturers uh, make these entitled carbon dioxide nasal cannula that allow uh, simultaneous delivery of both oxygen and measurement of expired carbon dioxide. And the values that they now need to do this are very low amounts of the exhaled uh, volume. So the capnography can detect two common hypoventilation patterns in sedation. So the first one we'll call bradynic hypoventilation. And this is where you see that your respiratory rate being markedly decreased and the end tidal CO2 pattern, capnography, is, is increased. So your, your value is going up. So your waveform shows a higher amplitude and width. And then we have hypopnic hypoventilation. The respiratory rate is decreased and the tidal volume is markedly decreased. In this case, you may actually see a lower value on the capnography and the waveform is going to have a lower amplitude. So in both of these cases, the end tidal uh, CO2 monitoring is going to alert you sooner than any change in pulse oximetry. Furthermore, end tidal CO2 monitoring or capnography is required in patients undergoing deep sedation. The only exceptions here would be where you're doing bronchoscopy, where there's just really no room to also add in that equipment, or a rep repair of a facial laceration, which again, to have the equipment there would get in the way of actually the repair. There's been one emergency room study that showed capnography led to reduced incidence of hypoventilation and desaturation. And this was uh, done by Melissa Langen, published in 2015. 
I would advise listeners that if they want to learn more about capnography, to go to www.capnography.com to learn more about the basics of end tidal CO2 monitoring. Thanks, Kevin. What is the role of uh, bispectral analysis during pediatric procedural sedation outside the operating room? Sure. The bispectral index monitor, or BIS, is used to determine the depth of uh, anesthesia in the operating room. So, with that, a baseline BIS value of less than 60 is considered to reflect general anesthesia. Uh, there was a study published back in 2012 in pediatric emergency care where it was reported that during most procedural sedations, the physicians involved are likely underestimating the maximal depth of sedation for their patients. And then there was another study published prior to that in academic emergency medicine, where they reported the use of uh, BIS monitoring with propofol sedations in the emergency room. What the investigators found was that there was a lower rate of respiratory depression when physicians had access to BIS during procedural sedations. However, most centers are not using BIS monitoring And as a result, they may be underestimating the depth of sedation, which highlights the importance of good airway and hemodynamic rescue skills. So, Dr. Calores, what type of monitoring do you recommend during short hematology-oncology procedures, such as lumbar punctures or bone marrow aspirates and bone marrow biopsies? Thank you, Carmen. So, I would say that uh, most of the hematology-oncology procedures uh, require deep sedation for patient comfort and to avoid trauma from the procedure, which these children are going to get multiple times. So with that, deep sedation is what they need and what they should receive. So then the requirements are a continuous pulse oximetry, uh, monitoring of the heart rate, blood pressure every five minutes, and capnography. It can be argued that these are short procedures, so why go through the bother? But it really, you know, helps alert you to if there's any sort of hypoventilation or airway obstruction going on, particularly when patients are undergoing things like a lumbar puncture where they have to be placed in this uh, fetal position with their uh, feet up to their chest, excuse me, knees up to their chest. In addition, most of these uh, patients would uh, be a physical status three or higher on the American Society of Anesthesiologists. So, they likely have some level of impairment of their cardiovascular or respiratory system. Great. And Dr. Colores, what does the Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium studies inform us about monitoring? Sure. Uh, so there was a, a study that used a large data set from the Pediatric Sedation Research Consortium, also known as the PSRC. And this looked at 114,000 sedation encounters from 37 major sedation programs and was published in the Archives of Pediatric Adolescent Medicine. In that report, Dr. Langen found that there was high variability amongst providers in the use of physiologic monitoring during procedural sedation. Uh, Published guidelines from societies like the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American College of Emergency Physicians, etc. were only followed 52% of the time. Uh, most of the patients received uh, pulse oximetry. Uh, this was uh, 95% of the time, but uh, only 45% received capnography and only 33% received the recommended combination of pulse oximetry, electrocardiogram monitoring, capnography, and blood pressure. The smallest overall differences in monitoring use were based on the ASA physical status uh, classification. This was 1% to 10%. Thanks, Kevin. Hey, uh, Dr. Colores, we appreciate your insights on today's podcast. As we wrap up, would you mind highlighting 
your personal clinical pulse regarding physiologic monitoring of patients undergoing procedural sedation? Sure, Pradeep. The best combination of monitors would be a continuous pulse oximetry. This is going to give you both the oxygen saturation and an independent way of looking at the heart rate. Then you've got capnography. This is going to help you see is the patient maintaining their respiratory status, breathing, not breathing. It also is going to show you if there's any early signs of hypoventilation or airway obstruction. And then you have your intermittent non-invasive blood pressure, you know, aka the blood pressure cuff that's going to go off every five minutes during deep sedation, less frequently during moderate. I myself would highly encourage the use of capnography for both moderate as well as deep sedation because a moderate case can slip into deep sedation very quickly and then you've already got the monitoring in place. So in summary, on today's SBS podcast, Dr. Kevin Colores has highlighted the importance of physiologic monitoring during procedural sedation. We want to thank Dr. Colores for his expertise on this very important topic. This concludes our episode on the physiologic monitoring in pediatric procedural sedation. We thank Dr. Kevin Colores for his expertise on this topic. We hope you found value in this short podcast. We welcome you to share your feedback and place a review on our podcast. Stay tuned for our next episode on procedural sedation. Thank you. I'm your host, Pradeep Kamath, along with my co-host, Dr. Carmen Sultan. Music